There we go. Um, so we had just been started to talk about, I just called it other meditation projects. Yeah. And that the point that I'm kind of making is, is that uh, the other kinds of meditation practices are not actually other kinds of meditation practices. Everybody's practicing. They're just leaving a few pieces in it. Sort of like having um, a car and they take out the back seat, take out uh, the window glass, they take out engine, and pretty soon they've got their vehicle, except that it's not going in place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but when we add all of the things back in, all the skills that are added to it, and also these skills, almost all of the skills, can be developed other places. So let's talk about yeah. skills and what skills that need to be developed. Uh, the Buddha starts off with the skill of right. And when we say view, we're not talking about a noun like a viewpoint. Yeah. A view, an attitude, we're talking about looking, investigating, taking in data over and over. And when do we do that? When we remember to. So now we've got the two main skills. Whenever you remember to look, look. Now. This is actually uh, two skills that are necessary for martial arts. Yeah. Within a context, not remembering all the time, but only remembering that you're in the ring and that there's danger and you've got to wake up and watch what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But if, if you're in the boxing ring, say, uh, uh, well, I think the rounds last for about two minutes, and then the really big prize fights are 15 rounds. So all together in that whole match, there's like 30 minutes of mindfulness. That's all that's necessary. But if you don't have mindfulness, you're going to lose that bout. You're going to get yeah. hit in the face every time you're not looking. Okay, So uh, that's one of the places that martial arts and those who practice martial arts are already developing a skill that they can now apply to Anakanasaki. Yep. And then the next one of remembering and then looking, also looking itself is a skill. Now in um, uh, martial arts, that looking would have to do also with the quality of response or reaction time. Where the skill of, of looking and being here now uh, with uh, Anapanasati also has the quality of developing discrimination. discrimination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just like in prize fighting or in martial arts, learn the difference between a blow that it lands home and does its job, a knockout punch, is mm -hmm. different. And the punches that uh, five-year-olds give each other. Mm -hmm. And so that's also the quality of the discernment of recognizing what kind of thoughts that we have are knockout punches 
and what kind of ponchos don't matter, don't mean anything. That's something I've been noticing a lot over the past couple of weeks since I've been doing the practices that uh, I see you're recommending for beginners. Um, just being able to discern how much easier, like A, how much more enjoyable and easier meditation is when you're actually putting some wholesome thoughts in there and just watching for the hindrances um, as the center, you know, with the breath, not because a lot of the other meditation uh, advice I've been given in programs I've followed, like you say, it's very, it's like concentration based. It's not necessarily samadhi based. It's, it's concentration and there's a little preamble about the hindrances, but they're not treated as something that's like, you're going to sit here and get the breath going, control it a bit and just, just find the hindrances and just get them out of there. <laughs> and so there's been, there's been some discernment just seeing how effective that is. Um, just from doing it, it's just it's obvious uh, uh, how how well that works. The two major places where you find um, it practiced incorrectly is one under the label of noting, and the other one is under the label of choiceless awareness, which is more yep. big. Now, uh, the point about choiceless awareness is correct, and the point about uh, noting is correct. It's just not. Mm -hmm. The problem with um, the uh, choiceless awareness is, is that we, the, the student is taught to be choiceless aware of what's going on outside. So what? <laughs> right? So that's the kind of way that they're, they're looking at it. But in fact, choiceless awareness is very, very much then like uh, the noting method of Mahasi mm -hmm. in the sense that the noting method is to note what's going on on the inside, but not doing anything about it. Just noting. Yeah. This is the practice, in fact. Uh, note it, note it deeply, note it well, keep noting and noting some more, and when you get finished with that, start again and note some more. Okay. And the question always arises, noting what? And the mm -hmm. answer to that is noting whatever is there. Right? Yeah. Which is also um, so far so good with the teaching of the Buddha. Sure. They're missing both sides is missing a right effort. Right yeah. effort is one of the major parts of the path. It's missing in choices awareness because you're not making any choices. You're not doing anything. And that was something that was something I became aware of. This was years ago. I was reading um, Thanissaro's. You know, he has a lot of content online, and he had this this one talk. He was like, he was like, grab the breath and make it like how you want to make it. If you want a deep breath, take a nice deep breath and enjoy it. Don't just sit back and 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 just watch it. Like actually do something with it that you think would be useful. And there was something in, you know, what he said um, that makes a lot of sense in terms of having the discernment to know what to do and actually just doing it rather than just sitting in the meditation and just and just watching things kind of happen. Um, actually being able to guide the mind into doing something like you would if you were practicing an instrument, you know, you actually try to execute some kind of technique. 
and train it. Mm -hmm. And so I really resonated right. with that. Yeah. So actually, you're bringing up music. That's another kind of skill that is very useful in the in Anapanasati. Um, one of the biggest qualities of music is repetition and repetition of the music itself, as well as the repetition of the practice to do it over and over and over and over again. And that we can actually understand that repeating something or doing it over and over and over again can for in some strange ways be considered concentration. Mm -hmm. But most people don't think of concentration that way of just doing the same little thing over and over and over again, which would be basically the way that the child who was doing his homework could do it. It's just do one problem and then do another and then do another and then do another and have some fun and do another like that. Okay, but when the the parents or the teacher says, do your homework, concentrate. Now the child has to struggle with each one of the examples or each one of the puzzles. He's supposed to add something to the doing of the uh, of the example. Or the, That's exactly what happens with the struggle. <laughs> to it. Right. So concentration has the quality of struggle. And Anapanasati has the quality of seeing the struggle and removing it. Mm -hmm. Because we've gotten up quite, uh, we've already built up in our society the habit of struggling, especially when they don't feel like they can do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what we do then, instead of actually doing it happily, easily, joyfully, we struggle at it and fail. But by struggling and failing, then we get the higher ups um, mercy, grace, and forgiveness because look how hard we tried. Mm -hmm. So we get the consolation prize. Now, this actually is the entire basis of Christianity. Yeah. This is 99% yeah. of Christianity is, is that, okay, you're a sinner. Go and stop sinning, but I know you can't do it. So come and confess and then go and send some more. Yeah. And when you're dead, God will give you because you did confess and did screw up, but you worked hard at not screwing up and did it anyway. Now you're going to get forgiveness and get into heaven. That's the funny thing. No one in heaven that dies, I mean, Christians especially, Christians seem to think that they're the ones that are in heaven. And yet all of the people who were in heaven under that example of Christianity would be failures. Yeah. That, 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 that heaven is, uh, let us say, a collection of thieves, pickpockets, rapists, uh, uh, preachers with their hand in the panties and in the till, and that's who you're going to have to put up with if you get into heaven. Because they're still going to do it, but they're going to get forgiven for it when they're in heaven. The only difference in between heaven and hell is that heaven, you get forgiven for being bad, and in hell, you don't. Yeah. All right, so this is how that whole system is set up.
And back to the point about um, the noting system of the noting mm -hmm. is that it's almost the same thing that you're supposed to note and struggle and work hard at noting, but uh, you don't ever come out of the sin, even though that's true. This is kind of interesting, the way that it's built into the 16 stages of insight. I think you might have heard about that. Before. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite familiar with the stages okay. of insight. So the 16 stages of insight, there is stage 11, which is remarkable. And that's the one of the redoubling of the effort. Finally, yeah. they're going to put some effort in. After the, the, the horrible after, emotion. After all of the dark night of the soul and all of that, and they're so disgusted with the way that they're doing it, finally, they're going to take the effort to practice the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four yeah. Noble Truths, which is step 12. Yeah. And so what I try to do with the students is let's start off at step 11. Let's let's go right in and get ready for and go right into the Four Noble Truths and the Eight Four Noble Path. That's what the Buddha teaches. He does not teach despair, and fear, and um, misery and disgust. That that's actually what happens when people are not practicing correctly. Well, and it makes sense that it would happen if you don't know how to get the hindrance out of the mind. You know, you're going to have like the the stages of insight has an explosive experience that's positive and then a, and then a, a huge dropping off but if you don't know how to get the hindrances out of the mind and build some uh pity and sukha then of course there's going to be this super low value if you don't have the skill set to to stop it and to me it, it just seems crazy to not teach people that now uh because i've you know i've been in those states before well, and saw it it's not so much crazy that the teachers don't do it. It's that the ignorance, the, the teachers that are out there teaching are ignorant. Yeah. Of the teachers and, and and to be fair to the um, the whole Mahasi tradition, like I studied with a Mahasi uh, um, monk at the at a Mahasi center in Vancouver, and my experience with them was much different than what I hear about people talking about noting online. Um, the monk that I worked with was much more tender and calm. And he even, you know, I even asked him point blank, what do you do if someone's having these hard experiences? And he just says, you just stop doing that practice because it's causing issues. And so he was a lot more, um, I would I would say, level-headed about it. But some of the other people that I've, you know, the Western advice online is more like, no, just note through, like it's concrete wall and you just got to note through it. And that was not the advice I got from the Mahasi Center, but that's the advice, you know, again, that's uh, you often see online from people that are practicing noting. So uh, I, I thought that was interesting to to note. It's, it sounds like that you've run across a monk that had gone through that and had gotten finally to um, uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eight Four Noble Path. It's mm -hmm. also an interesting point that Step 16 of that 16 stages of insight is basically the statement, never mind, start again. But it's mm -hmm. raised sense of continuing um, ongoing investigation. investigation. Ongoing investigation, okay. Well, why could we start that ongoing investigation right from the very beginning? That's mm -hmm. the problem with this 16 stages of insight or 16 stepped insight is just that they should not be seen as steps and stages. 
they should be seen as perhaps items. But we couldn't even say items on the list because then we take the list in list order. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is what happens with other, you know, there's like Chuladasa's concentration stages. The same stuff happens to people. It's like, you know, they get they get kind of hung up on the, the sequential order of, of things. So if there actually is an order for the 16 stages of insight, I'd start with number 16, then go to number 11, and then 12. <laughs> and that would be the 16. It's number 16, number 11, and number 12. And you can forget yeah. about most of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so the, getting back to the idea of the skills that we have to develop, We've talked about or began to talk about three of them, which is the, the skill of remember, skill of waking up, the skill of coming back to the present moment to get out of our uh, daydream. Mm -hmm. Sort of like the wake up call is when the teacher is standing at the front of the class and all of a sudden she beats a little stick or something to make some noise and then she screams at Johnny in the back of the room, Johnny. Stop daydreaming and pay attention, okay? That's his sati, wake up. Pay attention to what's going on in the classroom rather than daydream. You know, I found, like, one thing I really wanted to talk about at some point today was I, I, I found that, you know, humor is very useful for doing this. And these stories, you know, they're very useful because they're fun, right? So, like, when you wake yourself up, when you have the sati with, with the right view and the right effort online, I found that, you know, the humorous letting go of the hindrances, it works so well. Like it, it works well and it's fun and it feels good, but uh, that's rather right. than, Everything is, like it's playful is rather than it being like really intense and serious, you know, it's like you're doing the right work, but it's playful. And it, it, so it's, it, it's, it's aimed in the right direction, but it, it can be done with a certain well, type of spirit. You could go so far as to say that the playfulness comes with the attitude and the result of success. To where yeah. the heavy duty concentration and working is based upon the expectations of failure. Yeah. And that it's going to be a tough slog. You got to beat your head against the wall. Not recognizing that not only is your head beating against the wall, the wall is also your head. <laughs> <laughs> it is your wall. And it, so, it kind of, I mean, people kind of talk themselves into the hindrances being harder to deal with than they actually even are any moment by, by making it into this big thing that's going to require all this, you know, this superhuman type of the effort. hindrances hard is a hindrance if they don't do It's that. so silly. <laughs> <laughs> and that, in fact, that's one of the, I would say if there is a key word Anywhere in the suit is just one word sitting someplace buried in some suit or another. I would say that that one word that is a key word to this whole practice is the word that's translated into English of gladdening, to gladden the mind or to mm -hmm. brighten the mind. Because that, there's nothing of that in either the Vajrayana uh, or the choiceless awareness or the noting. Yeah, I agree. That they don't, they don't have that quality of taking the right effort to gladden the mind. To I wasn't taught that in the Zen tradition. I wasn't taught to do that either. Right? I mean, there's a lot of great skills I picked up there. There's no doubt. But um, that one skill missing is it's a game changer. 
you know. It really That's is. Right. And I mean, even just my my daily life is way more enjoyable since I've been practicing like this. And um, in the Anapanasati Sutta, the gladdening of the mind is listed as uh, thus one trains oneself is what it stated, which means that this is a skill to be developed while mindfully breathing in long and mindfully breathing out long, one develops the skill of gladdening the mind. Mm-hmm. That's actually the way that it's phrased in the, yep. in the suit. And that this is the quality that's so the right effort of gladdening the mind is exactly the same as the right effort to change the unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that's what's missing in the Mahasi and it's missing in the Vedriana. But I'm not really sure, in fact, that it's missing in Mahasi Saladal's method. It's missing in, by, by and large, the Western Buddhism version of Mahasi's method. Yeah, and, and it, I, that's a really interesting point because, you know, I've heard you talk about that. I heard you talk about that with other students and with Daniel Ingram. In my own experience studying with a monk that was from the Burmese tradition, he studied with Saida, um, was that he was very joyful and very tender and playful and and it was infectious when you're around him. But, you know, for a Westerner, like, you know, he already has that online. So maybe maybe for him, when he does noting, he already has this this wholesomeness online while he's doing the noting. But for, for Westerners who are studying with him, uh, that might not be the case. I mean, it, there's tons of analogies you could draw with that. But it'd be like a musician already having good rhythm. And then they come for piano lessons and you start teaching them and they don't really need to do the rhythm exercises because they have that stuff. Uh-huh. You're, you're right. Exactly correct. So um, I'm reminded of the uh, conversation that I had with Steve uh, Google Viking, mm-hmm. Steve James and uh, Daniel Ingram where uh, we were talking about the Mahasi method. We actually did a... Uh, yeah, I watched that. I watched that a little while ago. And what Dan did in that was he did his diligent research and he brought up a passage from Mahasi on joy. And yeah. I said, well, I, I, I already knew that. But um, in fact, the way that I stated it is, is that, well, we're done here then. We've just done. We just made the point that uh, that Dan and I completely agree that that's what's missing in the modern version of the Mahasi method, is the gladdening of the mind and the joy, mm-hmm. and that in some of the um, Burmese traditions that's true. But it seems like that where things got kind of shifted or turned was when Mahasi, after he died. Upandita took over, and he yeah. was then the primary show and the primary um, uh, exporter of the Mahasi tradition, and it was he that made things really, really tough. On yes, student. yeah, I, I recall this. You know, it almost reminds me of like I. This is why I think it's important to study the Dhamma with a teacher and not just read, because like, I mean, I have music books that I've read, but I know the professor who wrote them. And I know there's a ton of stuff they left out of that book. And someone who hadn't studied with that that musician and just read the book, they're missing all these little details of how it's strung 
together. And mm -hmm. I mean, maybe that's what's happening with with how noting has come to the West, and it's you know it's very big online. Um, uh, but yeah, maybe, I mean that that's probably something like that, right? <laughs> uh -huh. Well, uh, we can go down that thread, but let's for for at least yeah. a little while let's continue on with this issue of the skills. What skills do we need in skill development? Uh, we've covered three of them uh, mm -hmm. superficially. The fourth one, then, is after we get uh, a practice going of right looking, remembering to look, and remembering and then taking the effort to change the mind from what was there. And when, when we talk about that, I can say it this way. Whatever thought that we're having in this particular moment could be improved. Whatever thought that we've got, it could be improved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, we can send, all right, well, let's look at it from that way. What, whatever thoughts that I'm having right now, we can make a slight improvement. An example of that is, oh, the wife wants to buy land. Oh, poor me. Where's the money coming from? I, she wants to buy land and I don't. And I think we, we share. I think we that. share that story. <laughs> well, we can change that into, well, we can afford the land. I mean, if that's what she wants, we can do that. Okay, so that's the way that we can begin to th uh, change our thoughts. Well, maybe it'll work out. Maybe it'll be okay. And so we can begin to change all of the negative thoughts, like uh, um, uh, the Democrats, for instance. Are, have just lost a primary or something like that. And the, and the negative thought says, oh no, things are terrible. We're going to have a terrible election uh, come November. And the, the correct answer to that would be, instead of that, we can say, well, now we've got something to do. Now we know where the weak spots are and we can go take care of it. So there's always ways of gladdening the mind and making the change to it. Mm -hmm. But if you do just the noting, it's going to spiral down, down, down into fear, misery, disgust, despair, and a strong determination to get out of it, which is step six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Of mm -hmm. Okay, so the, of the, all of that will be, uh, let us say, eliminated simply by that quality of gladdening the mind and bringing the mind back. So now that we've got those three things going, then the fourth one is added according to the Buddha in Sutra number 117. The fourth ingredient that's added is Sama Sankapa. The attitude. The attitude, right. Now in, yeah. uh, in um, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's version uh, uh, translation, he uses the word thought here, but a better word would be right intention. You know, that second one. That's what I had heard before, right intention. Right. And, and intention has also to do with that attitude or that expectation, mm -hmm. rather than uh, an actual verbal discursive thought. That the mm -hmm. verbal discursive thoughts that we have, uh, we can start off with that. But mm -hmm. after a while, we begin to actually look at and start changing our attitude about things. And that comes about with success. I, I felt that start starting to happen. Um, that, 
yeah you can feel you can feel the attitude like from bottom up like top down you can you can change the thoughts but then after a while you just feel the attitude bottom up changes and it like it 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 just pulls you in that direction um even stronger like you really feel it like you know i was just laying i was laying in the living room last night did a bunch of practice yesterday and there there's this little screensaver on my tv with these flashing colors and i was just sitting there like this is pretty nice you know everything's great everything looks beautiful like like a nice little screensaver on my tv like you know the everyone's fed like life is great but you know it was more like it was really felt like it was strong and it was the attitude was you know anything could happen this would be fine exactly okay so that's that is the fourth uh skill that comes through development of the other three the other three run and circle around each other it's stated and then we add this fourth one the samus and copper which is the right attitude and that is uh based upon the confidence of having been successful at being able to wake up, take a look, and gladden the mind. Wake up, take a look, and gladden the mind. And now you've gotten the mind gladdened, and you feel successful of that. So now you wake up, gladden the mind, uh, take uh, look at what you're doing, gladden the mind, and then kind of in a way, I know that this, some Buddhists would not like that, but take credit for it in the sense of a- acknowledging the success. It feels more like it doesn't like it feels more like um, like the success was positive, but it's like, well, now I know what to do. Now I know what actually works to make that happen. Uh-huh. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like I'm like such a good person for having done it or anything like that. It just feels good. And it's like, well, now I know how to do it. Like, this is uh, great. Exactly. <laughs> so, right. It is not my what a good boy am I? No, no, it's, no, no. Wow. This is the way to do it. This works. Yeah, and something interesting, you know, I heard you talk about this and I've been experiencing this. Now it doesn't seem like hindrances won't ever come back, but now there's just like an honest, well, now I know what to do. This is great. Like there's no problem. If the hindrances come back, boom, 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 you know, I have a few little things I do. This is great. <laughs> That's exactly correct. And then there is one more step to that. And that is, is that not that we have the general idea that hindrances, yes, I can handle them. But the next step on that is it does not matter how heavy or deep those hindrances are, I can throw them out and come back to this present moment. Now, that mm. is actually what the Buddha calls the first step of the noble path, is mm. that knowledge of being such a winner that it does not matter what kind of crack comes by, we've got it wired. That yeah. is real confidence, okay? This is the uh, the strata, and that the example that we have is, is that the Buddha was known to be a, a lion, to be a bull. And as some of the suttas say, things like, it does not matter what kind of assembly he is in. He can walk into a bar, he can walk into a court office, uh, a courtroom, he can walk into a political gathering, he can walk into the gods uh, in heaven. And wherever he goes, he's the center of attention. Anywhere he goes, all the people's attention will turn to him, okay? There have been many people like that in the past. Mm-hmm. 
Some of them are healthy and wholesome and some of them not. One example would be Rasputin and mm. some particular politician. Uh, to where the other kind of politician like Trump is when people see him, they don't gravitate towards him. Well, some do, but most people run. <laughs> I'd be running. <laughs> <laughs> but and so we can we can think of it in that way that the lion the one who is so self-secured and so confident that people will gravitate towards that. And so this is why uh, he's a lion and we should practice that. This is a practice, the mm. practice of being a lion, the practice of being in charge, the practice of being the one who knows what's going on. This is the Samus and Poppy. It is full on attitude and it can be developed into mm -hmm. a kind of supreme position. Mm -hmm. And you will hear people talk about that in the sense of I am God. Well, mm -hmm. you have to define God in a certain way, but if you define it correctly, then I'm God. I'm the boss here. This chair is going to sit right here on the floor. And I'm not going to let it float off into the air. I'm going to sit on it. <laughs> okay, so this is the way that we look at it, that we, we can handle anything. And, that, and we start with that by changing the, the, the thoughts that we have that are defeatist thoughts, thoughts of difficulty, mm -hmm. into thoughts of ease. And when things are really, really easy, that means that you've got it wired. You you could you could do this. That that's that's the attitude that we build up. Okay, so as we're building up those four skills, we also start developing some other skills. And those skills are in uh, listed in the Anapanasati Sutra. So we, we mm -hmm. take the development of these four skills that we have from the Eightfold Noble Path and bring them then into the practice of Anapanasati in the sense of waking up and investigating the mind to step nine and step 10 would be then the gladdening the mind. But now we're going to be working in some other areas. And that is, is that instead of just talking to ourselves, we're actually going to start working with the way that we feel. This is where the Vedana comes in. Mm -hmm. That in fact, the way to talk about it correctly would be that as we're beginning to change the mind, the way that we do that is by using the body in the sense of watching the body breathe, becoming aware of the sensory um, input. That uh, you, you've known that there are, uh, in Buddhism, we think of it as six senses, six of them. Yeah. The mind is one of them. And that's where we tend to spend far too much time, mm -hmm. except the only input for that mind is old data. The past junk yeah. to where the input for the eyes and the ears is present data. So if we are coming out of the past and out of the future, we're actually coming out of the mind and the sense organ of the mind into the other senses of the body, the eyes, the ear, the t especially the touch, because we have mm -hmm. gotten so out of touch with touch. <laughs> and it happens in childhood. Children are extremely 
uh, kinesthetic oriented. Mm -hmm. Any little boo-boo and the child will cry. Any sensation yeah. is a strong sensation. All right, but as we learn to grow up, part of the, what we do is begin to stop thinking about the body. In other words, when a child is learning to walk, they're always in the danger of falling down. And they're mindful of that. But once we get the skill of walking developed, we stop even thinking about walking. We just walk without even thinking about it. We let it be done by motor skills. That we do need these motor skills because if we had to think our way through every movement that we made, we wouldn't be doing very much. In fact, the old joke is uh, that one of the animals in the forest saw the centipede. And so he goes up to the centipede and says, wow, I've only got four legs here and I know how to use them. But your centipede, you've got a hundred legs. How in the world can you walk with a hundred legs? And the centipede thought a minute and then he lifted this leg and he moved that one back and forth and then he fell over. And then he says, as he had fallen over, I don't know. That's what happens to piano That's what happens if you ask a musician, how do you play that? So they start screwing up, but you know, they start overthinking it. Exactly. Yeah. If you ask the musician how he played that passage, he'll start overthinking it and he'll screw it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if that's the case, then as we are young people, we spend less and less attention to the body at all. We don't watch the breathing, we don't watch our hands, we don't watch our postures, we don't watch much of anything because we're very outward and past and future oriented. So we're even thinking about something. Which is like what you were saying before, if you if you have some other life skill like martial arts that's forcing you to pay attention to the body and you've been working with that, it makes sense that you could bring that to the meditation mm -hmm. practice because it's not it's not like meditation is a bunch of skills that have nothing to do with the rest of your mind it's just exactly. they're not often trained very well outside of the meditation but but some of them could be yeah. well there are side skills that are developed mm -hmm. uh an example of uh the side skill of walking meditation mm -hmm. is is that people begin to start walking very quietly they don't stomp around and make a lot of noise the way that most people do. We also are more familiar with walking barefoot rather than in shoes, and shoes make a lot of noise. So that's one of the qualities that, mm -hmm. in fact, the, it's the quality of, of silence that gives rise to the idea that monks can fly. Because how in the world did he get right over my shoulder when I didn't have a clue about him coming into the room? Um because he didn't make a lot of commotion coming in the room and you weren't paying attention to your body anyway. If you had yeah. been alert to your body, your body would have told you that someone is walking up behind you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've done, I've done a lot of walking meditation over the past seven years and it's hard for me to think of how, it's, how normal walking is different, but you know, when I'm just walking down the street now, it's very difficult to not be mindful of the walking. Like even if I'm listening to music or listening to a talk, you know, the feet are in my awareness. They never like disappear anymore. That's just the way it is. But it's hard to remember what it was like before, you know, like 10 years ago. I, I'm assuming I wasn't mindful of it, but I can't, Precisely I can't so. think of okay. that. Yeah. So bodily awareness is a kind of a side benefit. 
of um, or a side skill of paying attention to the body, of waking up the body to, uh, to feel the sensations of the body and the breathing and all of that. So we work with the mind to work with the body that we cannot take a long deep breath unless until we remember to take a long deep breath or the body does it naturally because we're running upstairs or up a hill or something like that and then the body will start to breathe heavily but if if you think about it you can breathe in a deep strong relaxed way okay so in that regard we can now see that we use the body and the mind together and we're going to take them as kind of a pincer movement to get to the heart the real difficult one which is the vedana to learn to control our feelings mm-hmm. very very few people will uh boast about the fact that they are capable of managing their feelings almost everyone speaks in language that indicates otherwise an example of that when somebody says i'm angry or i'm frustrated that means that the anger is so big that it's encompassed me, whoever I am. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I am angry is different from, aha, I see the anger. I am not the anger. I'm the observer of the anger. So this this topic is something I wanted to talk to you about, about being able to influence slash control feelings is something that the message you get in the West, because it's very, uh, for Western meditators, is very much this mentality of we shouldn't control emotions because that'll suppress them somehow. We should just stand back and watch them and let them take their course. And even even the other day, I was in another Dhamma group, not one of your groups. Uh, I won't name the teacher, just out of some respect. But the the whole mentality in the group was that you know you can't influence your emotions, and it's it's really interesting hearing that now after well, they practicing they don't know how they don't have the skill <laughs> but there but there's the mindset's even deeper than i don't have the skill the mindset the mindset almost is it's dangerous to try because it's going to cause some kind of chaotic explosion we have to just kind of take it and sit back and after after practicing like this for a couple of weeks i'm like this is crazy because you know i've been meditating for a decent amount of time not not as long as many uh, a lot of people but you know 7 years pretty seriously and it would have been useful to know this earlier <laughs> you know because i'm having a great time no doubt you've heard of the uh aesop fable of the um the fox and the grapes you might maybe maybe tell it to me again because uh the whole thing's not coming okay. to mind okay the grapes were high up on the bush these were not low oh this the, is this the sour grapes Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, okay, and so okay. the fox is jumping and jumping and jumping and he can't get it. And so finally he walks away saying all oh, the grapes were sour already anyway. Uh-huh. Okay. So that's what happens with a lot of meditation practices is, is that they say that, oh, I, it's sour anyway. I should not try to control the feeling simply because I can't. But if you can't control the feelings, then how are we ever going to come out of our anger? How are we ever going to come out of our greed and our ill will, which is the source of suffering? So what they're saying is, is that by by saying you can't change your feeling, they're saying basically what the Christians say. You're stopped. You're stuck. 
you've got an original sin, you've got an albatross, and you're going to have to deal with a God or something because you can't fix it. And it also it also leaves aside this whole notion that's in the just all the Buddhist literature of, you know, things happen based on causes. So if you have a negative emotion, there's a cause to that and you can do something about it to change it. That's the whole game, mm -hmm. is, it, is it not? <laughs> right. That's a major distinction between the teaching of the Buddha and the old Hindu. They had the idea of the kama in the sense that the cause and effect, what causes this effect that we're having right now happened a long time ago. And yep. you can't do nothing about it because it happened so long time ago to the point of the Buddha is, is that no, the reason that you're in this situation right now is because of what you just did. Uh -huh. The cause and effect were immediate. Uh -huh. And then in fact, in the Sutta number 12 in, uh, in the, lion, the, the, the large Sutta of the lion's roar, this is one of the first items on the list. Actually, it's number two of what makes a Buddha. The first item on the list is that a, that a Buddha knows what is impossible and what is possible. Okay, breathing is possible. Holding one's breath for days at a time is not possible. You'll die. Okay, so that's an example of it. Now we can think of it like this. You were born, you will live, and you will die. That's possible. Not only is it possible, it's evident. But reincarnation, there is no evidence of that. It's sure. And when we can see what's possible and what's not possible, then we can begin to see what kind of stories people are telling us are all face lies, because what they're saying is impossible. Yeah, I have a very, um, some of my friends know this, and if they watch this, it'll be funny, but I have a very low tolerance for magical thinking. Like, it's extremely <laughs> low. It just, and I mean, you know probably more than anyone that the meditation community is just a circus with this stuff because they believe in things that are not possible yeah an example of that i can sit here in misery and med and call it meditation hour after hour day after day <laughs> until i rack up a hundred thousand hours of misery and then the common machine is going to come in with a shakti pot and make me feel blissful I mean, that's that, impossible but that is i think the operating assumption Maybe maybe not verbally evident in someone's mind, but it's the it's the operating assumption that's guiding a lot of people's behavior in this in this sphere. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of, you know, I just got to keep playing the lottery until something happens and I'll win the bliss jackpot forever. And and the thing that people are beginning to wake up to, and that is, is that the jackpots and these lotteries are rigged. How many, in fact, the Michigan lottery, they went that way for years because they didn't ever come up with a winning number, so they just added to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they pulled out the number. Here's the number. Anybody got the number? Sorry about that. We'll keep the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I and nobody wins. Nobody wins that lottery, okay? That's how it has wound up. And so this gives the idea in Western Buddhism that always been centuries since anyone's become enlightened. Yeah, you said something really interesting on one of the one of the YouTube 
conversations I listen to that, you know, Westerners think there's very few people that are enlightened, even that are monks. And you were saying in Thailand, there's like 400,000 monks. Yeah, like I something say, like I, the number that I've heard is 25,000. But I heard that 30 years ago. I don't know how many there are now, but that's basically no 25,000 nobles in uh, 25,000 nobles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 25,000. I'm not sure whether that was referred to as just nobles or fully uh, enlightened arahats. Uh, sure. But in any case, it's not nearly as unique and as uncommon. You see, yeah. that's the thing about Jesus is is that if they had left Jesus as an example for everyone to follow, we'd have a completely different Christianity. But what they did is they put him way high up on a pedestal. Yeah, he's unique. We only have one Jesus at a time, you know. Yeah. OK, and we've already had one. Humanity's had their Jesus. Sorry, you're, we've run out. No more Jesus left. He was a unique, special kind of son of God without recognizing that we're all sons of God. We're all sons of God. We're also all sons of bitches, too. <laughs> and we don't know that we have a choice. We all think that we're sons of bitches, and that's just it, that we're born into suffering, and that's just it, that we're screwed. Mm -hmm. Because we can't change the way that we feel. Mm -hmm. Now, if we can develop the skills to change the way that we breathe and change the way that we think and change the way that we experience the world, we can also change the way that we feel. Then, in fact, we have been changing the way that we feel. We just didn't know it. So the way that I express that is we have been talking ourselves into feeling bad for our whole life. Now yeah. it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good. This is what those gladdening, wholesome thoughts are about, is that they do affect the way that we feel. Which you're, you know, um, let's say a clear example of that, that you can change the way that you feel. It's, yeah, it's, it's really quite possible. I mean, all I, I've always meditated a lot in the past, you know, years, but all I started doing, as I said, let's start from ground zero. Let's just do 10 minutes a day, five, six, seven times a day, who knows, whatever I can fit in. And it's been really nice, you know, because the practice doesn't really feel like it stops between the sits. The sati is still very frequent, just... When you, know, you could just, go so far as to say then that your sitting meditation is when you were intentionally, intensely practicing remembering. Yeah. So that you get up off the chair or get off, off the floor and go about your daily business, you continue to remember. You continue to remember because that's the skill that you're developing is the skill to remember. And it, it it's interesting, you know, I'm sure everyone's background is different, but you know, my background of of having this piece missing, it makes it feel so good to do. So there's a really good like motivation for doing it. It's because like my days are fucking a lot better when I do it. And even not just the whole day, but the moment feels better. You know, whatever I'm doing, um, it's just so self, it almost like makes a feedback loop. Like it's so self-reinforcing to do it. And even when the mind starts to drift and 
and and maybe some hindrances come in or distraction or whatever, it's like, oh yeah, I don't have to I, deal I with that. Oh, look at that. <laughs> I can see that. Exactly. Okay. So in the regard then, now that we're beginning to talk ourselves into feeling good, this is now in the Anapanasati Sutta where the Buddha says, mindfully breathing in long, one trains oneself in sukha. And mindfully breathing out long, one trains in sukha. And then you go to the Pali Dictionary and you find out that sukha actually has clear definitions. Also, we can see that sukha is exactly the opposite of dukkha, that when you're in a state of sukha in that moment, you're not in dukkha. And yet, within the Western Buddhism, we think that dukkha, dukkha everywhere, and it's going to stay there for years, and, and you're only going to get rid of the dukkha if you're really, really lucky. Right? That's the kind of way that they, they phrase that, it. That is how it's phrased. And I mean, even when people talk about the three characteristics, they, they talk about um, they talk about no self and impermanence, which I'm fine generally with the way that's spoken up. But then this dukkha part is is in the Western tradition. It's often just phrased as like, well, nothing satisfies. That's it. There's not really more of a conversation. But, you know, the way that I'm hearing it from you is that this being satisfied, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what's going on. Yeah, things don't satisfy, but you can you can you can train yourself to be more satisfied. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, just again to hammer that home, it's like that message is not what I've been hearing. And I'm very much, you know, read in this Western Buddhist sphere. And it's just not like, hey, just take it a little bit at a time, train to be satisfied, and it it works. Well, satisfaction has several constituent components mm-hmm. that would, let us say, destroy our satisfaction or if we didn't have them or take us back to dukkha. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, by the way, the primary feeling of the human, the primary feeling of all life form, the primary feeling is the feeling of fear, mm-hmm. danger. Because the whole point about being alive is sustaining life. And so we all have a built-in self-preservation instinct. And the language that it speaks is is fear. Which is why that feeling of safety would be an important... Right, exactly. So even even humanity, when we were, uh, let us say, jungle bunnies, when we lived in the jungle, everything was dangerous. And so we start doing things like building houses and building villages and building communities and then building cities in order to feel safe. And yet no one feels safe in a city. Mm -hmm. That's the interesting thing that we took uh, the danger with us. Mm -hmm. And so if we're feeling in a state of danger, that's not satisfying. That's not satisfying. So we have to come to the state of feeling safe and secure. Well, guess what? The reality is that we are safe and secure. Right now, there are no alligators, there's no monkeys, there's no crocodiles, there are no uh, mafia bosses, you don't have a boogeyman in your closet, there's not a bear under the bed, that you're safe. And we don't give ourselves credit for the fact that right here, right now, we're safe. We start thinking about emails, and then we feel insecure because of an email. We feel insecure because of a water bill. We feel insecure because of a comment. 
I want to buy some land. And all of a sudden, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. So, and so just to comment, and people get angry and uptight and upset because of a comment or because of um, um, a thought. Mm -hmm. But the real danger is not there. So paying attention to the reality of the situation and talking to ourselves about with thoughts about the reality of the situation is, is that we are safe right here, right now. Why can't we give ourselves credit for feeling safe and secure? Because almost all of the dangers that anyone has ever had is either going to be in their past or in their future. That in fact, someone, some people would go so far as to say that every problem that any particular human being has ever had in their whole life, 99% of those problems didn't ever happen. They didn't materialize. They stayed mental. And here we are developing and thinking about 99 things that could go wrong when in fact none of them go wrong. This was something I noticed over the past two weeks of doing this practice and and following your videos and, and material and stuff is just the the relationship with time seems different in terms of like you can use time as like i gotta meet this guy at seven o'clock and we'll both be there and that's great but it doesn't really seem uh real in the same sense that it was before in in terms of you know when you're thinking about futuristic problems they're just kind of they're just thoughts they're not they're not like everything's good right now i'm just sitting in a, a well-cooled room on a decent chair i got water like every in that sense like what's actually got going on here, I, need. I, got it, I got it yeah and uh, you know right we have now this, we're okay okay right now we so, got this technology and we got to talk and you know everything's pretty good right now so we don't we don't pay attention to that kind of stuff mm. that, that we're always paying attention to the possibility of what could go wrong and and anything could go wrong you know, I started I started kind of experimenting with this, like just watching how thoughts like drive up this fear and this kind of uh, distracting attention. And I, I just started putting um, kind of funny thoughts in the head, like there's a unicorn outside that might die if you don't run outside and deal with it right now. And you can just see how ridiculous that is. Like it doesn't it doesn't uh, get your body fired up in, in the same way that a thought that you really are invested in does but essentially they're, they're very similar to each other in a certain mm -hmm. sense they're both just you know the mind just yapping correct exactly so <laughs> dealing with fear that way the next item that we can look at is the issue of comfort that if you are in physical or bodily discomfort never mind mental because that's what we're dealing with but if the body is not comfortable then we're not in a state of satisfaction we need to be in a state where the body is comfortable so that it can relax. That that's in fact step four of Anapanasati is to not just become familiar or investigate the body is step three, but do so with the intention of relaxing the body. Mm -hmm. And yet you will find things like the Gawanka method with the strong determination sitting, which by the way is for me is too. And people oh, will I mean, sit for a long time and their body will become uncomfortable. Right. I sat in the Zen tradition, right? It's brutal sometimes. Like <laughs> it's it's really something mm -hmm. not not enjoyable for the body. 
is not enjoyable for the body and because it's not enjoyable for the body it's not enjoyable for the mind and there is no sukha there it's just more dukkha now we've got bodily dukkha okay. and then you wonder why you're not running back for the next retreat the next month right <laughs> no i know so having shorter sitting sessions in these retreats would be a good thing to do i've been make- i've been really enjoying the shorter sessions i've been getting very very calm, very happy. My body feels great. You know, I know I get to do more of them during the day. This is great. Sometimes they go longer if I have time. Well, if the mentality is is that this is really tough nookies, this is tough going, and you're going to have to beat your head against the wall, and that mentality is is that, yeah, and I'm going to have to keep beating, beating my head against the wall for an hour or two. Yep. Right, because of the the quality of endurance. Um, so if we have sukha, that means that we, it's got a basis or a foundation of um, freedom from fear. Uh, I wouldn't call it fearlessness because fearlessness has to do with bravery, or we walk we walk into a, de- a dangerous situation. You can you can see in the old days that someone is putting on his battle armor and battle gear and he's fearlessly going off into battle. Yeah, but what that's courage. Yeah, because you wouldn't even you wouldn't even use the term fearless unless there was something to fear. Right. So a better way of looking at it is that this same guy, instead of dressing in battle armor to go out to battle, he's actually going to cook dinner because he's got a guest coming. Why? Because I'm not afraid of the guy at all. You see, he got into battle armor because he was afraid it was danger. So we have to actually stop getting ourselves ready for for battle and start getting ourselves ready for a dinner guest. Because that's all that we've got. Just there is no nothing to fear. He's my friend. He's not my enemy. So when, and when we begin to have that idea, then we can have that feeling of uh, that's why I use the word safety and security as opposed to fearless, because we don't practice fearless. We practice being safe and secure. Mm-hmm. Because fearless is something you do in the face of danger. But when we recognize that the danger itself was manufactured. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that there really was no danger in the first place. Now we can feel safe and secure. With safety and security and comfort comes now, the real issue is the satisfaction. And these three things together, safety, security, comfort, and satisfaction are the primary ingredients of sukha. That if Mm. you have safety, security, uh, comfort, and satisfaction, where's your dukkha? In that moment. Okay, so this is a skill to be developed, mm-hmm. but we're not finished yet because the next part of it is, is that as we practice this safety, security, and satisfaction over and over and over again, we begin to again, again to get that attitude. Hey, I can do this anytime. It's not just a one-time shot. Now I can do it anytime that I remember to do it. And that yeah, I noticed. So I notice it starts just. You know, you end the sit, and the attitude feels good. And it's like, well, I'm just going for a walk down the street. I'm not sitting, but there's no reason to to stop 
to stop working on that stuff because it, it, it feels nice and the, the sati's still there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so now we've got a new skill developed, and that is not just sukha, but the attitude of I can do this. The attitude of life is not only worth living, but is worth living happily. Wow, this is good stuff. That's the Sama Sankapa, and that's also what we refer to as the pity. The pity is the feeling, I've got it. Mm. Now, when we bring uh, the, the issue of gladdening the mind and throwing the hindrances out, bringing the body into a state of relaxation and comfort, bringing the mind into a state of satisfaction and the winner's attitude these are all skills to be developed, okay? And by bringing these skills developed, especially when I add the word applying the mind to the wholesome and sustaining it on the wholesome, applying the mind to the wholesome and sustaining the mind of, into the wholesome, which eliminates the hindrances, having sukha, and then that winner's attitude, the pity. Now, this is a combination of a group of factors that we would call samadhi, and also called the first jhana. At being able to get into the first jhana quickly is a new skill to be developed. How can mm. can I get? Do I have all of these little skills or laying around that I can put them together quickly? And yeah, can and I that then is, I mean, that sustain is totally, that? Yeah, but that's totally different than you know, what you hear about the jhanas from a lot of people, it's a, it's a type of concentration attainment. It's a, it's a type of like mental focusing on an object attainment. No. And, and which is... That's got nothing to do with what we're practicing here. That's just a bad representation or the, let us say the bad translation of the word samadhi does not mean concentration. Yeah. You know, which is which is really interesting because I found the same thing in music. It's often very, uh, you know, from teaching music and, and studying it myself, telling someone to concentrate is almost a completely pointless uh, direction to give them. You would almost like if I was trying to get a student to do something, I would I would just tell them what to do. I'd say, put your finger here and just watch this note going to that note. I wouldn't give them this blanket statement of just concentrate more. It's almost like I don't know what they would do with that information because uh, it's just more. They stress. would struggle but, and concentrate, which ends up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's really it's really uh, interesting the parallels there. Yeah. So the example that I was using for mathematics is exactly the same issue with the music. If you tell the child to concentrate, he can't do the mathematics. He's too busy concentrating. If you tell them it's almost like they just try to start looking like they're concentrating, like they tense yes. the body up. So it looks like they're doing something really, you know, intense. <laughs> and we learn to do that as children. So when we begin to practice meditation as an adult, we do the same thing. Because when you, you know, you listen to like, uh, like uh, Richard Feynman talking about how to solve a problem, he's often just like kind of stepping back and kind of taking this wider, like, holy shit, I gotta, I gotta take a second and think about this. Like, it's very, it's wider. It's not this narrow uh, focus to solve an issue. It's a, it's a more kind of panoramic openness to things. That concept is actually, uh, let us say, sprinkled throughout the suttas. Mm -hmm. 
but it's not actually directly specified of mm -hmm. going back and taking distance. But it does have words like relinquishment, letting go, atamayata is an example of that. Atamayata. I guess the openness is even applied like with the with the four foundations of mindfulness that there's actually four different like kind of dimensions of your experience that you're supposed to be aware of it implies that it's going to be somewhat open it's not going to be narrowed on one of the foundations necessarily mm -hmm. like you're going to be watching the body and the senses and the mind and the mind objects and the feelings Precisely. so it's kind of yeah it's implied there but uh and we have a concept like watch closely in fact i remember that from a song watch closely now but the example that I'll use is imagine that you're standing very close to the railroad tracks, let us say five feet from the tracks. All right, not close enough to when the train comes that you're going to get knocked over. You got to have a little distance, okay? But just a little bit of distance from the train, and as the train is speeding by, you're too close to it to see the letters on the side of the boxcars. You can't read the numbers, you can't see what company it had it, you might get some color. But if you stand back 20, 30, 50 feet, now you can see the numbers on each boxcar as it rolls by. Mm -hmm. When we're too close, we can't see anything. Okay. Now, imagine that we're in a cycle. And inside of that cycle, we're here and we like it. And then it changes to this and we don't like it. It changes to this and we like it. We change to this and we don't like it. And we're stuck in a cycle up and down and back and forth and over again. However, if we can see by stepping back, we can see the cycle. When we're in the cycle, we can't see it. Mm -hmm. This is why I talk to the students in the sense of sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. Begin to see your cycle. Watch what you're doing. Look at what it, over a longer period of time. Okay, so. Uh, as we develop these skills, then the skill of being able to get into the first jhana quickly, and then the skill of, the, of staying in the first jhana quickly is a higher kind of skill. But in order to stay in the, uh, in the first jhana means that you have to keep applying those little skills of remembering to look, gladden the mind, and to throw the hindrances out, and let's stay, sustain this quality of feeling very good. Mm -hmm. And so we can see that, wow, that means that we've got four skills in the Eightfold Noble Path. Then we have those, those duplicated, plus we're adding pity and sukha and applying the mind and sustaining it. And now we're adding getting into it quickly and being able to sustain that for a long period of time. And so we can see that there's a whole lot of skills that are put together with that. Mm -hmm. And so this is the way that it's important for us to recognize that these little skills of Anapanasati then will uh, help with those bigger skills because the skill of sustaining the first jhana is a way of getting the mind really fit for work so that we can see things clearly. And so this is now a basis for building even further skills. Mm -hmm. The skill of being able to see the arising and the passing away. Which is the layering you were talking about. 
That's right. So there's many, many different layers of these skills, and there's many different ways for people to uh, develop these skills outside of the practice of meditation and then use these skills inside meditation. That's why I really like to have students like musicians and mathematicians and computer scientists and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I'm not so much interested in having accountants and lawyers because they've got <laughs> skills that is going to not do them much good when it comes to practicing correctly. Yeah, I don't know if it's like this with other musicians, but um, you know, I've been playing music pretty seriously for. 20 something years but the the framework that you laid out it, it's familiar to me you know in this other domain their skills have to be layered in this way and the idea that you do that um makes perfect sense mm -hmm. just yeah yeah makes perfect sense well yes. i want to be mindful of my uh my bedtime here i usually go to bed pretty early but i uh, really enjoyed this conversation and, uh, yes, this has been really good. I'm glad that we've had it. It, uh, it. it also reinforces the Anapanasati Sutta and how to practice, as well mm -hmm. as looking at these. Everything is a skill to be developed. Yeah, I can Even see why. Even the skill of relaxing is a skill to be developed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went to the uh, I went to the one of the, the Sangha meetings earlier today too so it's been a it's been a nice day for my practice <laughs> right. very nice well this has been a really good conversation i really appreciate it thank you so much I'm, I'm excited for the for the next one i will um i'll see you um i think during the next sangha meeting i think on what's, friday what's today is today thursday so thursday wednesday for me so thursday for you it's today wednesday right so it'll be friday night so it'll be in two days great uh, i look forward to it all right oh, thanks we'll so much uh -huh. take care okay bye-bye